and good evening, Gary. Oh, good morning, Jonathan. We have completely disoriented everybody who listens to this. I, I, I disoriented them. Well, we have to explain. We've reversed our polarities. This is now my morning and your evening, and every other podcast has been my evening and your morning. Exactly. I, I really don't know that I'm going to be able to frame any thought, meaningful thoughts at all. It's the wrong end of the day. But I sit here in my office. I'm surrounded by books. I've just poured myself an 18-year-old Freud. So I guess we can so, give it a go. I guess we can. I mean, this is one of the things that... Um, maybe we're going to discover things about each other on this because I <laughs> normally... Normally, I'm not asked to think at, what is it, 8 o'clock in the morning my time, I believe. Um, I mean, you go to university budget meetings and things like that in the morning, but nobody really expects you to be <laughs> conscious during those. We're all zombies. Well, well yeah. Whereas um, you know, the other way around, I'm sort of kicked out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning and expected to be functioning by 8. Uh, mm -hmm. And by 9 o'clock at night, it's all done. So there is none. Of, I mean, unless I'm at a convention, this is in fact probably the most convention-like way that I've had to record uh, a podcast since since World Fantasy. So, mm -hmm. so here we go. It's been a hell of a week, Gary. It has been a hell of a week since last we spoke. Well, certainly started since last we spoke. We had that uh, news, uh, not unexpected news about Diana Wynne Jones. That was yeah, uh, that was but, very sad. It, it was sad. It's been sad for some time. I've talked to um, you know, people I know uh, that uh, Sharon November was very close to her and was very distraught. Of course. But uh, she'd been fighting this illness for some time, mm. and um, it's not um, it's not a surprise. But as, as they say in many of these cases, you know, it's 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 not a surprise, but still feels like a shock. Yeah, I can believe and it. She, can... And she's some, she's somebody in the field I never met. Uh, uh huh. Now, see, I didn't meet her either. But we did judge the World Fantasy Awards together in 2001. Oh. And so, quite oddly, uh, and oddly because up until that point I'd not read any work by Diana, um, I ended up talking to her on the phone a number of times. Uh, and certainly, even back in 2001 when we did this, you know, sort of jumping on the telephone to, to you know, the UK was considered slightly kind of forward and expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it, was, it was fascinating because she was a really interesting, strong, opinioned, intelligent woman, as you would expect from her work. Mm -hmm. um, I will say sort of sentimentally that the abiding image that I carry with me of her, uh, which is not a visual one, but an, audi an audible one, is calling her one English summer when the Australian cricket team were touring uh, the UK and catching her. And she was literally rummaging through a cupboard full of gumboots while her, hus <laughs> while her husband listened to the cricket in the background. And so there'd be the, the odd bon mot from him about the state of the ashes, you know, the cricket, uh, as we talked about both rummaging for gumboots, wayward sons and, um, the, you know, the state of the world fantasy awards. So it's, it's a really kind of a very warm feeling about the whole thing, to be honest. Um, but it never quite nudged me to re towards reading her work a lot. I, I, I sort of always meant to. Mm -hmm. And in fact, just this week, I read Charmed Life, the first of the Crestomancy books. Just because that's, I guess, what happens. And I, I mean, have, you, have you read much of her work? 
Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't read any of the Crestomancy books. I read, let me think. I know I, I read Howl's Moving Castle and, mm-hmm. oh, what were the others? It's been a while. I mean, I read her a long time ago. She seemed, and I think the reason for that wasn't that I was avoiding her work. I mean, people mm-hmm. I respect enormously sure. uh, have, uh, well, Farrah Mendelssohn wrote, wrote a, uh, an entire book about her. Yeah. Uh, and I think what was interesting about her is that, like a few other writers, she she seemed completely uh, her own thing. Uh, yeah. In in the sense that uh, it, it it was very imaginative, very uh, fantastical kind of work, yeah. sometimes with phenomenally original images in it that didn't belong in any identifiable tradition. She wasn't a sure. Tolkien-esque writer. She was very oh, much no. a Diana Jones writer. Yeah. Uh, and and that was one of those. She she was in a sense was one of those writers who uh, we were making. Uh, jokes way back at the beginning of our podcast about books you don't need to read, which has yeah. nothing to do with books, the quality of books. But if you were trying to get a sense of the mainstream of the field, she was off to the side and, and in a very good way because I, yeah. what I did read with her, uh, of her, I, I appreciated its lack of similarity to anything else I was reading. Um, I think that's, that may well be the case, even though um, what's struck me you know, this week and as, as I sort of look back, is that she has such a strong connection to the whole tradition of British writers writing for children, I think. Uh, yes. And you can see it in her approach overwhelmingly, and I realize straight straight up that I am you know, responding to her biography as much as her bibliography. She had such a, an odd approach to family in her books. Mm-hmm. That's you know, true. Uh, I mean, if you look at her biography, it's a somewhat strange, you know, odd family background that she had. And when you go and, I mean, like if you read um, Charmed Life, the way that it, and I've, and I've only read what Charmed Life, I read Conrad's Fate when it came out a few years ago, mm-hmm. and a handful of short stories. Um, but, but what struck me with Charmed Life was there's, the, there's this young uh, pair of children, and they are orphaned at the beginning of the story within a page and a half, so it's not really a spoiler to say so. Um, but they don't seem particularly perturbed by it. You know, they weren't particularly close to their parents. Mm-hmm. And they, they go into a household where that seems pretty much the case as well. Uh, everybody's a bit sort of distanced and divorced from one another. Um, and I was intrigued enough that I picked up the second of the Crestomancy books and started reading it, and there's another portrayal of this. And I also flicked through a copy of Archer's Goon, which is another one of the books of hers they talk about. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this seems to be an abiding pattern through her work, from what I can tell. And I'm by no means a scholar of any kind. And I'm sure that uh, sort of if Farah Mendelssohn, for example, ever listened to this, she would either be hopping up and down their seat saying, you don't know what you're talking about, or going, well, yes, of course, that's the obvious thing. But uh, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that as I sort of progress my way through her bibliography, which I intend to do, um, because I've both been encouraged by people to do so, and I have enjoyed what I've encountered so far. Uh, and I will say that I am delighted by the fact that she, that her work seems to be, well, was scheduled anyway to be reprinted. Um, mm-hmm. I know that there's some new editions for work coming out in the U- in the U.S. early next year, uh, which were on track regardless. So you know that's nice. And I must say she that was, I was sorry. Yeah. No, I, I was going to say I think I, I think you're right. She's. Uh... Certainly was in some, I think, and, and I'm going to have as many people hopping up and down with uh, 
disdain as, as you. That, but, but again, she seemed to be in dialogue with that tradition of as kind of Edwardian railway children, uh, children's fiction. But she, apart from her originality, she knew her way around the fantasy world very acutely. And, mm. and actually, the favorite thing of hers is a nonfiction book, is her Tough Guide to Fantasyland, yeah. which is just... Uh, I'm surprised that hasn't gotten more circulation because I've seen people... Uh, sometimes in a parodic way, just reinventing all the ideas. She knew everything that went into a formula fantasy yeah. and how to manipulate it and how it was misused and so forth. It's a very funny book in some ways. Yeah. And um, so she, she knew what was, she was very knowledgeable about the field, and I'm sure you must have come across this in, in judging the award with her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you could see both the kind of knowledge that you would expect from a very talented and perceptive storyteller but as well somebody who's well-versed in the field. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. When you look, at, again, at the biography, you're not surprised. I mean, you'd be aware of all mm -hmm. these things. But the fact that when she was a child, you know, she was yelled at by Arthur Ransom. I know. That's amazing. And, and, and her sister was, what, slapped by Beatrix Potter. Mm -hmm. And she went to, you know, to college and was lectured by C.S. Lewis and by Tolkien. Um, and then ends up, I mean... Chris, is it, is it, I think it's Chris Chant, the Crestomancy, is based on yeah. Neil Gaiman. I did not know that. Yeah. I know Neil was very close to her. Yeah, uh, very close. I think, the, I think it was the first one to report her. To her. So, so I guess what I'd say is, I mean, I, I'd like, one thing that I hope to get out of, you know, uh, I'm going to have to try and meld that together. That's very annoying. But I have no idea what happened. No, it just dropped out. Okay. Well, I will pick up and just say I, I would apologize to the podcasters and just say we had a technical hitch and hopefully we will push past it here. But what I was going to say was what I, I hope to get out of going and rereading Diana's oeuvre or reading Diana's oeuvre is perhaps a better appreciation of how she did integrate with the field because I have the suspicion she integrates much better than we think. I think she, I think she can be read both ways. And I, when, when I was saying that she seemed to be her own tradition, I think that certainly meant as a compliment. Sure. But it's also meant as when you talk to readers, there are um, uh, probably maybe more. No, I think it's true in fantasy and science fiction both, but maybe more so in fantasy that there are certain writers who seem to have uh, a fairly wide and uh, uh, diverse readership beyond the people who normally read fantasy. I knew, yeah. I know, in other words, I know a number of people who are quite familiar with Diana Wynne-Jones and don't read any other fantasy at all. Sure. Um, and it's, it's not just that she's separate from other fantasy, because I know a lot of people who, oh, for example, have read the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, and they're not interested in fantasy. They're only interested in that. There sure. are probably Wheel of Time readers like that. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think that Diana Wynne-Jones, just parenthetically, is far more important in the long run than the Wheel of Time probably is. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, but she I'll probably, I'm sure she is. We'll hear from people by that too. But yeah, <laughs> and so there was a sense, there, there, there's a genuine uh, uh, original literary quality to her fiction, even when, and again, based on very limited reading, even when she's addressing fairly familiar ideas, it seems, it's very inviting, very engaging kind of yeah. fiction, which not all fantasy is. No, by, by no means. I mean, I will say the, the odd thing for me is, and I think this is pretty much true, over the years, probably starting in the mid to late 80s, I would encounter Diana's books. Uh, and I think the first one that I would have bought would have been in the early 1990s, A Sudden Wild Magic. 
Mm. And none of the packaging appealed to me. And I'm sufficiently shallow that that kept putting me off actually picking up the books. Um, and I find my, I find it sort of in this day of the iPod much easier to pick up a, you know, a book where I can ignore the packaging sometimes and read around the feeling that it's probably not really for me in, on some level and just interact with the book. Because, you know, from what I've seen there, they're, it's fascinating work and well worth it. So That raises an, inter- an interesting question about packaging in general. And we talked about, oh, we talked about this a few weeks ago. When, when you have uh, e-books taking, an in- t- taking a larger and larger segment of the market, the, the package is less and less of an influence. Is that a good or a bad thing? Uh, yes. I don't really know the answer to that. I know that uh, when I was a kid, for example... You learned. I, I developed what I considered to be my individual tastes, initially based on the packaging of sure. um, of paperbacks and some some packages I liked and some I didn't. I remember when I very young when I began reading when I began buying paperbacks. I realized that uh, Ballantine books with those wonderful Richard Powers covers yeah. were the ones I wanted to read. Yeah. Uh, and and the signet books, which had some wonderful covers by wonderful painters as well, um, I'm trying to remember the name of one of them now, uh, meant hard science fiction to me. Yeah. Um, uh, so so that to some and, and and the ones that were at that time, uh, th- there was a series of young adult uh, books from Winston uh, that just meant no, you don't want to read this. This is this yeah. is going to not be real science fiction. Now you don't have those clues. Uh, basically. You have a lot of uh, you have you have all the blurbs and all the promotional material, but you don't really have the cover to go on anymore. And I, as a kid, you know, I always did judge a book by its cover, literally. Yeah, of course you did. You know, I mean, this is it. I mean, it, it, it's one of those things where we, I mean, we all know this to be true. This is not a particularly sort of staggeringly intelligent comment I'm about to make, but you know, we all, we're all there's all that sort of thing. Well, you know, you don't judge a book by a cover. And you go, well, yeah, you know, you really do. Yeah, you do. You do. Yeah, you do. And um, if, if if publishers really, um, you know, will really believe that, then you, you wouldn't have people like Chip Kidd making a, a, a huge uh, career out of making books look attractive. Oh yeah, uh, and, and, and I nor, nor what you get in the classics field, sort of people packaging and repackaging and repackaging and repackaging the same out of copyright classics because they can find other ways of chipping off bits of the market. Anyway, the yes. other thing that happens, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, so so that. Um, but but here's another thing that happens, and it's uh, it's it's fascinated me since I've been reviewing, and reviewing, well, very few books from finished copies, and then you realize when the finished copy comes out, this book looks a lot more important than I thought it was, <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes a lot less important. I just received this is a book that I did give a good review to, and that I do like, but just this week I got the finished copy of Graham Joyce's The Silent Land. Oh yes, yes, which is just a gorgeous book with this sort of translucent uh, jacket on it. Uh, it's clear that it's being positioned as a literary novel more than a genre novel, which is characteristic of, of Graham Joyce. Sure. But you know, reading it, reading it without that packaging, you're thinking, okay, your first initial, it's, this is another Graham Joyce novel, which is exciting enough by itself. Yeah. But you don't perceive reading it how the publisher and the marketing people and the design people are tweaking it a little bit differently um, from from his earlier novels. I think that's true. I'm torn as to whether it's a good or a bad thing. I mean, part of me goes that for a book reviewer or an editor or whatever, don't you want to be ju- judging the text rather than the publishing event? Mm-hmm. And up to a point, I think it's true. However, 
if you have a well-crafted package, that communicates something itself. And I think it can be relevant to the reader. And to the extent that you're reviewing for readers and book buyers, then that becomes valid. And sometimes the other package kind of goes awry, you know, and you're left sort of going, why was that packaged like that? It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I saw, I saw an online uh, discussion of Sarah Hoyt's book, The Dark, Dark Ship Thieves, I think it is. I think that's the right title. Which came out last year from Bain. And they're discussing it as part of the, um, as part of a, a, a year in women's science fiction thing. And it's got a really pulpy Bane cover, which is what Bane do very successfully and with a great deal of skill. Mm-hmm. And by and large, they're saying this doesn't actually coincide enormously well with um, with the book. And you're sort of going, well, that's a bit of a failure. And isn't it odd that it's coming out then from Bane? Because Bane are a particular kind of publisher. Which, of course, mm-hmm. then also dovetails in with our discussions last year at great length uh, about Nedia Korifor's book. Yes. Uh, coming out from Daw, of all places, where, you know, you partic- expect a particular kind of book from Daw, you know. Delicious. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, but, uh, and that surprised me because it, uh, I think it surprised a lot of people. I mean, if, if you go back far enough, you can remember that Daw was publishing, I think, I think they were publishing Tanith Lee decades ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've done this sort of thing, but, but by and large, uh, that the uh, book by, by Nettie was the first one I've seen that really looked radically different from the doll books that I'd seen mm-hmm. before. Um, and I know, remember when we were, when I was reading for the world fantasy awards last year, there were some, uh, books, which almost all of the judges except one simply put aside because of the really awful covers. Yeah. And one of the judges called attention to, uh, uh to the novel and we all read and thought, well, this is, this Basically, what we're saying is we were completely disagreeing with the marketing and design people as to what ought to be done with this book, and, <laughs> which I think is 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 a valid disagreement because sure. um, I've I've seen cases I've talked to people I've talked to publishers uh, who have gotten what for example might be essentially a literary novel I'll try to think of an example in a minute and and thinking well we don't want to sell this to this tiny literati of fantasy readers we want sure. to sell it to a broad audience so we'll try to yeah. repackage it uh, and, and and that certainly happened with the uh, uh, the uh, gene wolf novels the book of the new sun and book of the well actually interesting the gene wolf covers became a little bit more uh, austere as that nine yes. or twelve volume series went on but initially they were clearly uh, uh, you know designed to go after uh, high fantasy sword and sorcery readers Absolutely, I think that's completely true. So, I'm, and, and, and again, we can't. I, I would not fault uh, any publisher if I were writing uh, what I thought was a fairly um, intellectual or literary novel, and they wanted to sell a hundred thousand copies of it by getting um, getting sword and sorcery fans to buy it. I don't think I'd object to that. I don't. I don't think I've ever heard an author complain that that he or she doesn't want those readers. Um, Hmm. That might Maybe be a big call. They, uh, that, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm wondering about that as uh, as I say. Uh, <laughs> well, I realize you know, sort of you're, you're thinking at the wrong end of the day, so you know, I'm take, thinking at the wrong end. Sort of... I will uh, by by next week. I, I will make footnotes. I'll listen to this podcast <laughs> and think of all the things I should have thought of at the moment. Uh, 
The other thing that happened this week, of course, was um, Sean Tan winning the Astrid Lindbergh Award. Which is astonishing. Astounding. Uh, and um, it's, I mean, I, I actually, I'd, I'd heard of that award before, but this is one of those awards which, uh, like the Newberry, is, uh, up until the last five or six years, anybody in our field has been so out of the running for that sort of thing, I think, that, uh, that it, it's, it comes as a shock to realize that uh, people like Sean, Sean is now mainstream. Uh, oh, yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's in a sort of universal position with um, young adult books, at least, that, that, that Neil Gaiman is in. And I think it's absolutely wonderful that people who are so much a part of our field, and you know Sean much better than I do, but the times I've talked to him, is, um, uh, it's been very clear that he's, he's one of us. So there's oh, yeah. always this family pride that comes when this sort of thing happens. Very much. I think what's interesting is that the, because it's happened so soon after he, uh, The Lost Thing won the Oscar, mm-hmm. it's now given him a cultural currency, certainly here, that he didn't have otherwise, even to some degree a little bit with the Oscar, because it's like, you get somebody who, I mean, uh, several years ago, a guy won an Oscar for Best Animated Short Film, uh, mm-hmm. Harvey Crumpet. Oh, yeah. That was the film. It's an Australian. And it did very well, and the guy did great and everything else. But I don't. I, I kind of get, had this feeling that he sort of stuck his head up, up above the parapet, everybody went, you're great, and then he went back to what he was doing. Right. Because this happened so soon afterward, after the Oscar, Sean was on all the major radio stations, all the major television networks. He was being interviewed on the evening news, all that kind of stuff. And that's really a whole other kind of thing for somebody like, like us, from, from, mm-hmm. from, our, from our, our field. Yeah, I don't. Th- in fact, I know Robert Jordan toured Australia and didn't get on the evening news. You know, well, well there's local pride in that. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, uh, but, absolutely. Uh, and the lo- I understand the lost thing has been shown on Australian national television now mm-hmm. as well, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of uh, uh, attention, I guess. Does this really mean that these barriers are breaking down, or does it mean that the barriers were never quite as there as, as much there in, in in young adult and children's books as they were in adult books? I, I suspect the latter. I, I suspect the latter. I, I also suspect that it comes down to uh, the nature of what's being broken down at the time, you know, and which is a very broad comment. But what I mean is, uh, it's easy to ignore someone when they're doing something that's genre related. And then if they get an Oscar and then a million dollar prize, suddenly mm-hmm. it's a whole other world. Well, the the only other reaction I can think of, and we should we should, by the way, parenthetically mention that the the, the new issue of Locus has a prescient interview with Sean it does, Tan in it because does. that that interview was done. We did I did I was not I didn't participate in that before any of this sort of thing happened. The only comparable sort of stunned pleasant. Uh, taken aback feeling I can remember like this was when uh, Octavia Butler received a MacArthur Award. Yes. Uh, about, what, five, probably not more than six or seven years before she, she died, unfortunately. And it was just astonishing to everybody in the field. First of all, the discussions that had gone on here in the States uh, is, had, had been along the lines of, if any, the probably no science fiction writer will ever get this, but if one does, it would be Ursula Le Guin. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it turned out to be Octavia indicated that somebody uh, had, I, I think I know who it was, but I probably shouldn't voice no. my suspicions. But, yeah. well, you, know, the, you know, the MacArthur people basically, uh, this is a large foundation that uh, that gives away a huge amount of money. You can't apply for it. 
uh, you're simply identified as one of the what they call geniuses. The MacArthur people have never called them geniuses, but creative people or scientists or choreographers or in some one cases a mime uh, get these awards. So that the people who decide the awards and recommend the awards are, are are never released to the public. But MacArthur has spies going around the country and the world to see how creative you are, I guess. <laughs> and you simply get one of these things. And the fact that it went to somebody who was not at that time widely known outside the science fiction and fantasy field was just stunning. Yeah. Uh, Sean has had the advantage, I think, of always having had, uh, like we said, his own following. Uh, oh, sure. His, his, the, there's, there's a unique look to his work. Um, and the, um, the um, earlier... Um, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the title of his his, his Hugo-nominated... Uh, was that the, the arrival or the lost thing or the red shirt? The, the arrival, the arrival. The arrival. May, not, may not have been Hugo. It was nominated for... No, he won, the, he won the World Fantasy Award for that, didn't he? He won Best Artist. Best Artist, that was it. Okay, well, I know he won, he won one that, that year. So, uh, so yeah. yeah, there was of uh, when I was... A good example uh, when uh, at least the... Uh, when the, when the lost thing went up online and I could, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like anybody else. I mean, I'm calling up all my friends and family saying, I, I know that guy, you know, <laughs> I, I know the guy, the guy on the stage now holding the Oscars and they were saying, yeah, right. Um, but, but then once they looked at it, it was very clear to me that people who had no particular interest in science fiction or fantasy, uh, could, were completely and absolutely charmed by the lost thing. Yeah. And I can understand why people, in this field, artists and writers might be attracted to a, uh, toward writing uh, things that can appeal to a completely unprepared audience. And yes, yes. Uh, I, th I think that's more true of, of science fiction and fantasy. As a matter of fact, we may, we may have had this discussion before because my memory isn't functioning this morning either. Um, <laughs> it could be. Could be. Well, the point I was getting at is that science. I think we remind me if we're covering old territory that science fiction is more likely to be directed at a prepared audience than fantasy is. No, In other no. words, mm -hmm. I've, I've heard friends of mine who, uh, let me put it this way, a lot of people who are occasional readers, who are not uh, regular readers of fantasy and science fiction, but who read broadly, they're more likely to pick up a fantasy book now and then than a science fiction book. Okay, yeah. And, and what, what they tell me is that, that fantasy, every fantasy book starts... You know, unless it's the eleventh or twelfth book in a series, every fantasy book basically comes with its own toolkit. It teaches you how to read the world. It teaches you uh, if, if if there are allusions to Tolkien-esque traditions, uh, you don't need to have read Tolkien. Uh, whereas in science fiction, a lot of times there are expectations from the reader that uh, that essentially make it uh, difficult to get into for somebody who doesn't read in the field on at least a semi-regular basis. I think that's true. I think it's very true. I do. And I don't know whether that's a good thing or, or a bad, but the uh, fact is that um, somebody was... I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and... Um, oh, I know. I had a student a few years ago who was... Um, well, to use Woody Allen's term, anhedonic. Yeah. Uh, she was incapable of any kind of aesthetic pleasure. It was a bizarre thing. It was a humanities class... We uh, were reading a lot of novels and looking at a lot of uh, movies and listening to music. She couldn't respond to anything. We had these uh, 
Oh. The other students took her on as a project because they felt that she was damaged in some ways. It turned out, we found out later she was. She'd had a horrible childhood. Yeah. Um, um, and the only, finally, the other students were asking, do you even like sports? And she said, no, she didn't enjoy sports either. She didn't enjoy movies, music, literature. And, and then she said, I like baseball. And we finally had something to go on. And she said, because of the statistics. I love uh-huh. the percentages and the averages. So everything came down to, to accounting in, in, in her life. Well, I was describing this to somebody the other day, and they said, maybe you should like Greg Egan, because Greg Egan can be sort sure. of read in a mechanical sort of way. And then I thought, well, she might, but she's never, ever going to get through the initial barriers to getting into Greg Egan, because she's not a science fiction reader. No, absolutely not. I think that's absolutely true. Strange, the impact of reading protocols. Yes, and they're... Uh, here's a question, though, mm-hmm. because you were mentioning uh, before we uh, talked about the the various questions that people frame about science fiction over the years and the assumption behind these questions that we all know who Heinlein and Asimov and, and Clark and Bradbury were. Uh, and to some extent, I suppose, well, Heinlein, Asimov and Clark probably did establish a set of reading protocols. It's Chip Delaney's term. Do we have different protocols now? Or are we still using the same ones we evolved in the 50s? Oh, okay. Um, I don't know that we. Okay, I don't know that we have the same reading protocols, but I think we have evolutionary descendants of the same reading protocols. I think that for most of the reading of the science fiction field at the moment, we're still close enough to that piece of history that most of it bounces off it in some way or another. I think, um, and you can certainly see the tendrils of it when you look back. I mean, that said, um, I mean, we've said often here that sort of the whole center didn't hold thing is, is, is true and that everything mm-hmm. has shattered and the field is very different now. And so that the concept of a big three is no longer, in fact, a remotely meaningful concept. So you're sort of, we're in a, po- we're in a post unification universe, but the impact of, or, or you know, the, the impact of unification can still be felt, if that makes sense. I, th- I, I think hope. so. Uh, if, if, if we wanted to come up with a good uh, didactic term, we could say we're in third or fourth generation protocols, I suppose. Um, I guess. I mean, I think, I, I think to some extent that a separate set of, well, a separate or, or an additional set or a revised set of protocols probably uh, emerged with things like Neuromancer, with things like cyberpunk. Uh, but the odd thing about that, if you look at virtual reality as now a convention, it's, it's one of the conventions yeah. which we recognize as easily as we recognize robots and aliens, that, uh, again, you can go back, and, 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 and historians and academics love to do this, go back to the pre-cyberpunk era, you go back to the virtual reality era, and realize, for example, that uh, the city and the stars begins with an immersive virtual reality computer gaming experience. Sure, sure. Uh, just, just without the language, without what, what we yeah. now receive as the language. Yeah, but then it's the language that we recognize and that, that get, leaves a, uh, has us start applying those kind of um, conceptual protocols. I think mm-hmm. you know because you're never going to read the city and the stars in the same way as you will a, a modern uh, virtual reality piece of work. Uh, but I mean, well, and yeah. fascinates me about. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, I was going to say the thing that fascinates me about items like that is uh, that you do find 
odd bits of um, I, I, I hate to talk about science fiction in terms of prediction, but I'm, by prediction, I don't mean necessarily predicting the future, but predicting the future of science fiction. Sure. Um, every time something new comes along, like, uh, like, like VR, for example, or like the Internet, even, uh, then we go back, back and we to find writers who imagine something that now seems prescient, but at the time was just another throwaway magazine idea. I know uh, a few years ago, I think even Wired magazine ran an article, or maybe even reprinted uh, Murray Leinster's old story, A Logic Named Joe, because uh, all, all the people who went back in the history of science fiction to try to find, was there an internet back there anywhere? Was there anything like PCs yeah. that are hooked up? And, and he had a fairly uh, a prescient discussion of that, but it you know, from what I know of Murray Leinster, and by the way, I hope to meet his daughter at this year's ReaderCon. His mm -hmm. daughter is working on, a, has done a biography of him. Um, but it was pretty clear from what I knew of, of Murray Leinster, he was doing what every pulp science fiction writer did, throwing out wild ideas left and right and making stories out of them. Sure. And, and not thinking for a moment, is this going to happen? Is this a logical development? Uh, and when he published that story, A Logic Named Joe, I think it was popular. It got anthologized a lot, but nobody followed up on that. No, no. Because it was just a one of a plethora of things being thrown around at the time, mm -hmm. just for you know, fictional thing. And of course, this is the, the thing that really does make a complete mockery of the whole notion of prediction. And I know this is what you're basically alluding to, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is that science fiction isn't in the business of prediction; it's in the in the business of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so, even the prediction that it engages in isn't taken from the perspective of trying to actually predict anything, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, because, they, <laughs> uh, again, the, the Golden Age writers, the, the very prolific writers, uh, were simply, the simple principle is if you set enough stories in the future, some of them are going to hit some target. But yes. at the time you're writing, you even know that that target is there. Yeah. Yes, I think it's very true. I mean, so, I used to always find a, I, I was always amused by the, amused isn't the right word, bemused. Uh, by the small subset of science fiction stories and novels that have always been there that are serious, very carefully worked out attempts to project futures because they almost never work. Um, mm. and, 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 and sometimes the ones that are just off the wall, uh, this, is, this, is, this is how Alvin's going to entertain himself 30,000 years in the future, turn out to be predictive when they weren't really necessarily meant to. Mm. Clark, for example, did both. I mean, Clark would write things... Uh, uh, you know, like uh, the Sands of Mars, for example, which was meant to be the most up-to-date, you know, yeah. uh, astronomically accurate portrait of what a Martian co colony would be like. It's not one of the novels of his that people tend to read anymore. No, because science moved on and it wasn't that interesting a story in the first place. Exactly. And yet, you know, uh, you, you, I, I wonder whether you could see a, a story like Stand, like Stand on Zanzibar being written today. Well, that's what I was wondering about as well. Uh, stand on Zanzibar seems to have uh, been very, very carefully worked out in all sorts of ways. And uh, I don't know of anybody who's trying to do that sort of thing. I've, uh, it's come up a lot in um, discussions, again, with, um, and in, in a literary sense. I think that today's readers or younger readers who encounter Stand on Zanzibar um, are more likely to look at the literary innovation. They're, they're more likely to see John Dos Passos' U USA trilogy and it, you know, some aspects of modernism being imported into science fiction. That seems to be much more fascinating than the, um, than the overpopulated world that sure, he's portraying sure. and so forth. Yeah. Actually, flicking on a question from, from somewhere else, uh, it just crossed my mind, so I'll throw it at you. 
do you think that science fiction has absorbed the new wave, or do you think we've tried to skip it? Um, skip it in in what sense? Um, have we absorbed the the literary, the conceptual, the artistic lessons that it was attempting to teach, for, for to put it in a particularly pompous way, or have we tried to sort of have science fiction continue as much as possible as though it hadn't happened? I think both. Um, I, well, one of the odd things uh, I, I know um, Karen Burnham is doing this roundtable mm, sure, at yeah. Locus as we speak uh, that that addresses this same issue, and I think part of what happened is not much different from what happened in literature in general. I mean. If we, we tend to look a little bit uh, insularly, I was able to say that at nine o'clock in the morning. I'm proud of myself. Um, at the new wave, as so though it's something that only happened in science fiction. But yeah. if you looked at other fiction during that period, you were looking at Alain Robguerre novels, you were looking at experimental films, you were looking at yeah. new wave French cinema, you were looking at uh, Miles Davis doing you know weird bitches brew Afro-Cuban music whenever. Everything was changing. Uh, yeah. There was a there was a huge influx of experimental fiction, um, <clears throat> which <clears throat> was reflected in science fiction, but wasn't unique to science fiction. And I think science fiction has absorbed it in the same way that general culture has absorbed it. Okay. In other words, you don't have a lot of people writing uh, a robe grier kind of objectivist fiction anymore. But that's out there. It's part of the texture of the field now. Yeah. But I think yeah. In in, in one sense, we've moved on in the sense that. We've moved on from the 60s in every other aspect of culture. Yeah. Uh, okay. But uh, one of the arguments I would make, and uh, I, I think there's some evidence, uh, if you look at what uh, what Moorcock was writing and talking about, I was uh, back in the 60s, um, and what Aldous and the others who were participating, they they were they were not just referring to science fiction; they were referring to a huge cultural movement. Yeah. Which uh, which is now past. Yes. And in in a sense, it's 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 in a sense it's like asking the same question. Uh, of of general literature, have we moved on from Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake and the Wasteland? Well, in one sense, of course we have, but that doesn't make them any easier to read than they were 1,500 <laughs> years ago. Yes, I sometimes wonder if anybody reads Stand on Zanzibar these days. Uh, I, I've, I had a discussion with somebody about it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, about three years ago, uh, four years ago, when I was teaching this what they call masterclass in science fiction criticism mm -hmm. in London that uh, the Science Fiction Foundation had sponsored. One of the other uh, instructors was Jeff Ryman, and he had them read intensively a chapter from Stand on Zanzibar. But again, he was looking at it from purely a writerly perspective. Sure. And I think I, th I think a lot of the new wave stuff um, stands up very well. A yeah. lot of it apparently is still disorienting to people. But I is is that is that because of the period in which it was written, or because there's a certain kind of experimental fiction that that still is around, but uh, but not as not a dominant part of the field. I mean, I, I, these movements in science fiction um, seem to me to be something that we don't pass through them. I think we do absorb them, and we kind of carry along the additional weight, which is not a bad thing. Uh, yeah. So you take one of the classic new wave stories. Uh, uh, Pamela Zoline's Heat Death of the Universe. Sure. Questions that people ask about that are the same questions that they ask about, um, oh, I don't know, uh, Karen Joy Fowler stories. Does it ever really become science fiction? Well, not really. Does it have a <laughs> lot of scientific ideas in it that are paralleled with domestic ideas? As a matter of fact, I thought there was a story in your new eclipse that reminded me somewhat of that, and I'm 
not remembering which one it was. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so so uh, the other thing I was looking at is uh, this huge collection of Carol Imschwiller stories. Oh yes, and some of her stories from the New Wave period were are clearly more difficult. And she had a very interesting way of looking at her career uh, in the introduction of that book, which you could also look at as a kind of uh, stylistic history of science fiction over the last 50 or 60 years because she began writing, because she was married to Ed, yeah. uh, to Imsch, she began writing for not very top market science fiction magazines, uh, original science fiction and things like that. Sure. Uh, very clever gimmick stories, but they were clearly uh, science fictional stories. And eventually she moved into a somewhat more literary market when she, when the magazine fantasy and science fiction became a market for her. And then became one of the new wave writers. There are two, uh, it's interesting, the two American writers who are still very active, uh, who were very much a part of the new wave, are, are, are Carol and uh, Kit Reed. Mm -hmm. And both of them were, were completely doing the new wave stuff. And then if you look at their post-new wave writing, that is incorporated into it. But there was a point at which, uh, what, one of the things that Carol said in her introduction, which I thought was fascinating, she, she learned how to plot stories because she had to sell them to science fiction magazine. She learned the classic, okay, the hook and the payoff mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And then she learned that she didn't have to do that. She learned yeah. how not to plot stories. And then after a few years of doing that, she learned, oh, I think I'll plot stories again. So she started, <laughs> and, and to some extent, that's exactly what happened. The new wave stuff didn't go away, but people began asking, well, can we write a new wave story that was the kind of uh, plot rewards that we expect from, from traditional science sure, fiction? Sure. So you get a synthesis. It's kind of a I guess it's kind of a dialectic, really, uh, yeah. kind of a Hegelian dialectic where you okay, <laughs> let's just do really experimental stuff for a while, and then we'll see, well, can we can we do this really experimental stuff and still have a plot and a story? And <laughs> the only reason I'm laughing, I'm thinking, is it is it too late at night for Hegelian dialectics? Or too early? I don't know. <laughs> somebody, somebody I, 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 I forgot who it was. Please, uh, no, I won't even say that. Yeah. <laughs> but Hegelian Alien is, it's certainly a useful thing to throw out when you're not thinking of anything else. But, yeah, I think that, uh, so, so my, my reaction, again, is Stand on Zanzibar uh, probably does hold up. It's accessible in the same way that those sure. passes were accessible. I don't know a lot of people that read uh, Brian Aldous's report on probability A these days, and that was very much in that French new wave mm -hmm. tradition that, uh, that they were experimenting with. Somebody asked me the question, so I'm, I'll throw it at you as well. I mean, how do you think, and I hope it's not sort of a, an awkward question, how do you think Aldous holds up these days? This puzzles me. I had a, I did an article uh, for some reference book years ago uh, in which I made an argument, partly to be perverse, but partly to, uh, partly seriously, that Aldous might have been the most important English science fiction writer since Wells. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, there, there was always a kind of friendly rivalry between Aldous when they were both at the uh, top of the field between Aldous and Clark. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and that, you know, the, I mean, Aldous was working on the uh, the screenplay for the uh, Super Toys last all summer yeah. long for a long time. And the and the reason I argued that is that uh, Clark had always been just Clark essentially. Yeah. Uh, he he did one thing, did it very well, created a whole tradition. Aldous was one of these writers who essentially did major works in every period of science fiction over a 20 or 30 year period. Yeah. Uh, he was, he was writing 
uh, he could do a generation starship novel and, and do it very well. He could do the kind of experimental new wave stuff. He could do the big, epic, sprawling, three-volume uh, invented world in Heliconium. And all of these novels, and, and Heliconium also became a very kind of literary model, you know, essentially this, he invented the planet, which echoed his own reading of Thomas Hardy's Wessex, for example. Yeah. And the thing that struck me is, strikes me is that, yes, he did very important things in all those areas. What his influence was is harder to gauge. Um, you mentioned Stand on Zanzibar. I suspect there may be more people reading Stand on Zanzibar now than, than are reading the Heliconia uh, trilogy or, or the Molassia Tapestry or some of the other yeah. uh, novels that, that, when he wrote them, appeared to be classics. Well, I'm willing to bet, and I could be completely wrong, and I'm doing no research on this, but I bet 90% of his books are out of print. Uh, that could very well be. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. I mean, the, he, he's, he's a very, very intelligent and, and stimulating writer. Um, but uh, it, it could be some of the books that, uh, that I'd seen discussed more than others uh, in the last few years were, were his early mainstream novels, the, the, the yeah. hand-reared boy trilogy and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I have to say that I, I, I couldn't read Heliconia. Mm -hmm. I completely failed. I mean, and that just may be one of a, a long series of reported failures on behalf of your correspondent. Um, but I, I found it very difficult to um, interact well, I think with that. In, in some ways, it's very much a set of Victorian novels. Uh, yeah. and, and I think the... Um, the elaborate invention that he went through uh, to create the planet and its long seasons and its uh, continents. He, he did a classic hard SF world construction job on that, which completely receded into the background when he started writing these, these long family sagas within it. So to some extent, I think people uh, may have felt disappointed in that the invention didn't come back to play as big a role in it as, as we thought. And in other words, the whole, the whole uh, of his science fictional invention turned out to be a long, long literary conceit. Yeah. And readers who didn't want to read long literary conceits were thinking, well, okay, we've got this great planet and you're just writing Victorian novels in it now. <laughs> so, I mean, if you are fresh to oldest, do you start with Hothouse? Um, well, there are Greybeard, Hothouse, uh, the... Um, Long afternoon of let's see, Greybeard is the long afternoon of Earth. Uh, well, Starship was the American title of the Generation uh, novel of his, mm -hmm. and I can't remember what the original British title was offhand. Mm -hmm. um, but but yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> in, a, in a lot of his short fiction, uh, there are some stories of his that I think uh, have been absorbed into the bloodstream of the field. Uh, yeah. but, but who can't replace a man? Uh, is is one of the classic uh, you know post-human sure. robot civilization stories that sure, yeah. uh, has has now become just a convention and still yeah. shows up. You know, you see echoes of that um, all the way up to and including um, well animated films these days. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I just thought okay. The, the, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, fr I mean, frankly, the reason that it crossed my mind is I've been corresponding with a, a new Twitter pal. Mm -hmm. uh, who is a mainstream writer, a very good mainstream writer, and also a 
very dedicated science fiction reader who's been saying all sorts of interesting things. A mm-hmm. uh, chap by the name of James Bradley who was talking about his lack of lack of pleasure in reading, uh, for example, Kraken by China Mieville or City in the City, or, but his great delight in reading the new novel, Embassy Town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was just saying about, you know, sort of, it had been many years since he had read Aldous, where should he, you know, you know, commence? And I was sort of saying, non-stop, which I think is Starship. And, non-stop, <clears throat> yes, that's it. Uh, and... And Hothouse was the other one, and 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 I, said, and I thought, well, then maybe followed up with Harlequinia or one of the short short story collections. But I really was left feeling: is Aldous one of those writers who is a giant of the field who's about to sort of slip away from it? There could be. I, I, there there are writers like that who seem to have. And who do have an enormous impact on the field, and Aldous's impact was probably most visible in Britain. Mm. <clears throat> but but the impact at the time seems to fade with time, and yeah. it doesn't mean that their classic works aren't classic works. But uh, there's a tradition of, uh, of of what they do that gets incorporated into the field. I mean, Aldous was actually one of the more literary writers before the New Wave, and mm-hmm. and continued to be afterwards. Um, but yeah, I think it's entirely possible to be a very, very influential figure in the field and then watch that influence fade, even though it's incorporated. Another example that comes to mind is Clifford Simak, yeah. who I don't know if any Simak is in print these days. Yeah. But uh, you know, er, in the early 50s at least, uh, well, no, it, actually Simak predates Sturgeon with this. But what we now see is a kind of whole pastoral tradition of science fiction, uh, the kind of... Uh, uh, thing that you got in 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 city and then later in uh, novel in, in most of his novels in fact yeah. that tradition is out there uh, people are still writing in a very Simakian tradition I think a lot of the younger writers who are doing this may not even know it's a Simakian tradition if that's an adjective I can use sure uh, but I think I think he certainly gave the field permission to uh, uh, to set uh, you know galactic uh, empires in small front towns and farmhouses yeah. in Minnesota yeah. and that sort of thing, which which would mean that your your John Scalzi's are as much influenced by Simic as by Heinlein. I would think so. Yeah, I think so. But Heinlein is the influence. Heinlein is this giant influence who's always out there, who everybody knows about it. I mean, one of the things that when you mention the big three, uh, another way of looking at that is. If you take any period in science fiction history and yeah. assume that there is a big three, assume it's Asimov, Clark, and Heinlein, sure. or assume, uh, and then eliminate the big three, then who is the big three? Who's the second three? Who's the third three? <laughs> who are the people that really were? Yeah. It, it's a provocative question, but the problem is, and it probably says something terrible about me as a reader and or as a commentator on the field, you kind of balk at it because you're going, well, anybody who's not the big three just isn't the big three, surely. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, okay, if you eliminate Heinlein, Clark, and Asimov, then surely you move to, for the, that period and that, that version of the history of the field, uh, and I say that advisedly, you move to Bradbury, Paul, and Silverberg, maybe. Mm-hmm. But uh, as gifted as those writers are, that's, first of all, perpetuating a particular view of the field, a particular frame, because, of course, any question that you bring to... Uh, to use as an analytical tool to discuss the field uh, frames the picture you're going to see. You know, if you if you talk about the big three, you, you will either see the big three, or you will, if you like, see the absence of them. Um, or you can 
<clears throat> yeah. Well, you can frame it. Uh, let's say uh, let's say you're going back in the early 50s and decide that you're going to assert that the big three were Bradbury, Sturgeon, and Simak. Okay. Uh, you have a completely different view of the history of the field, although it was going on in parallel to the to, to the more dominant paradigm of, of, of that period. Sure. Pohl, uh, and, and with Pohl, I think, and Kornbluth, let's see, who else could you, I mean, we're getting into a satirical paradigm there, which is yet a third paradigm of the field. You are. That, again, was very much visible to writers at the time, but seems to have been overwhelmed by the, the giant Heinleinian paradigm. Uh, I think that's very true. I mean, you, you can also, if you want to play the game, you can turn it and say, well, okay, let's look at the world in 2011, right? Mm-hmm. And ask ourselves, who were the big three? We just didn't realize it, okay? Which seems a very yeah. odd question, but go back to 1963, and the big three were Philip K. Dick for a start. Mm-hmm. And Philip K. Dick was not one of the big three or the big nine or the big 15, you know? So no. it's, it's only in retrospect that he becomes one of them. Um, arguably more influential in some ways, I guess, than, well, certainly possibly Asimov or Clark. Oh, I think, yeah, the, the uh, interesting thing is to see what's happening, for example, with these Library of America volumes. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, that certainized Dick in a way that no other science fiction writer has been canonized. Yeah. The second science fiction writer, a person at least started out as a science fiction writer who, who is now in the Library of America, is Kurt Vonnegut, Jr. The, the, mm. I think that volume is just out. And again, um, he was not, nobody in 1963, even though he was getting on times, he was doing Cat's Cradle, he was becoming, sure. nobody within the field would have thought he was one of the big three or four or five at that time. No. Uh, but, and, uh, and of course, this dances around a related question, which it relates to sort of women writers and the role that they had, the role they took, the role, you know, the role that it, that it evolved. Uh, and, you know, you ask yourself about your, your tip trees and your russes and all these very, very fine gifted writers and at what point do, do they come into your framework, you know? Um, tip tree who's been massively influential, mm-hmm. um, although perhaps oddly, in an odd kind of way, more influential than red, if that makes sense. Um, the same thing is true, I think, of Russ, uh, mm. because, uh, again, when I go to Wisconsin and I meet a lot of younger readers there who, in, in one way, idolize Russ, and then you find out they've read a few stories, uh, or they idolize Tiptree, but they've read a couple of stories, and, and so there's kind of a, a kind of mythical fog that surrounds some of these writers, and some of this has to do with ideological movements, and to some extent, um, Russ more than Tiptree, I think Tiptree somehow, may, by coming a little bit later, may have escaped the kind of uh, uh, cloud of associations that happened with Russ as the female man. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that Russ's novels from that period, and to some extent Le Guin's, but especially Russ's, um, now need to be extricated from, from the 60s and 70s uh, feminist movement ideology in the same way that some of the classic new wave novels need to be extricated from that historical period. Um, I'm amazed at how many people haven't read The Female Man. Sure. And yet, when people do read it today, it doesn't look like a 60s novel at all. People are still astonished at the passion and depth and, and, and brilliance of that book. It's it's a little bit like Stand on Zanzibar, except it works better than Stand sure, on sure. Zanzibar. Sure, sure. Do we need We see what the actual influence of the novel was outside of its immediate historical context. Yes. 
Do we need a Library of America volume for Joanna Russ? I would love to see that. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, but um, it's, uh, it's again, one of those. Because, the reason I don't think it's going to happen is because Russ's influence, uh, his, her direct influence on modern writers, I think, isn't what it should be. I think the, the myth of Joanna Russ may be, and possibly even the myth of, of Tiptree, may now be more in the air than, than the actual response to their works is. Yeah. Well, um, I saw that, I mean, Karen Burnham on the uh, Locus site was, I guess, in fact, on one of the podcasts I was listening to with it, Karen recorded, was saying that reading The Female Man today is still very confrontational and mm-hmm. it's a very challenging book. And there is a thing where that, that immediately puts you in a in the frame for a smaller readership, I suspect. You know? Um well, I think I think that's what happens when you have a deeply passionate book like that from yeah. any period. Yeah. Um, but my point is that it, it doesn't seem particularly dated. No. Um, when you look at the, it's interesting because I've been looking at uh, a lot of readers of the writers of the fifties, and there are uh, writers that I think um, are ought to be more influential than they are, and 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 are influential in a certain way. In other words, you can trace a fairly narrow path of influence. One of the 50s science fiction novels by women, which I think is enormously underrated and I don't think has been in print for a long time, is Lee Brackett's The Long Tomorrow, which I think mm-hmm. is one of the better of the post-nuclear novels of that period. Yeah. Um, it was very well received, very well reviewed uh, when it appeared. Um, it was, in a sense, her serious attempt at an adult novel. A lot of people who had been writing in the pulps uh, in, in the 50s decided okay, and we're going to write one big breakout novel. You know, for yeah. Fritz Leiber, it was The Wanderer, which, which didn't really take off. Uh, for Brackett, it was The Long Tomorrow. And yet, I, and I don't know if I've asked uh, Kathleen Angunen about this directly, but there are elements in her now tech quartet that seem to me to pick up very much on the traditions of, um, of, of Lee Brackett. Yeah. And I think that, that there may be very important novels. This fascinates me because... You know, important individual writers and and novelists and even short story writers mm-hmm. who have been influential, but they've been influential in a very narrow stream. You see, you still see people writing David R. Bunch kinds of stories these of days. Of course, yes. Uh, and yet, uh, and, and and you can see that kind of bizarre, uh, heavily language-oriented uh, kind of fiction. Uh, showing up in in writers as diverse as as, as I don't know David Marasek and uh, mm. uh, uh, possibly I'm trying to think of a couple of uh, what I, I'm I'm illustrating my own point here the yeah. the tradition is very important but very narrow you don't have yes. a lot of people doing those stories but the people who do do them are still strikingly original yes yeah I, I think that's true <sighs> are we getting towards the end of this is it almost the end Gary. Are we? Uh, I don't. I can't. Can't even keep track of my clock these days. Uh, I'm sitting here transfixed by a copy of Life on Mars, so I'm easily distracted. Excellent. It arrived the other day. Pretty. Thank you very much. And then, of um, course, you, you you sort of mentioned the digital issue of of Locus, which came out uh, yesterday, which was also enormously welcome here at, in in Perth by me. I would hope that Locus gets this more. It's getting some more discussion. I would think, especially in Australia, because of the the radical difference that you get in yes. the immediacy of having the issue. Yes, I think that's true. It's completely true. And then, of course, I think I'm pretty sure I'd have to go back and look at old issues, but I'm pretty sure it's my my first appearance on the Locus bestseller list, Gary. 
congratulations. Thank you. Because um, uh, Engineering Infinity is on the paperback list. Well, that's mm, congratulations again. Uh, Locust doesn't. I mean, I, 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 I've not looked at the Locust list this month, and I, I should know this writing for the magazine. <laughs> we don't have a separate YA. Do we have a separate YA list? No. Okay, I didn't think we did. First, I, I said that, and I suddenly went, hang on, did I look? Uh, I'd have to go look. <laughs> we are the worst people. Everybody in, at Locust is going to hate us, and we're going to be mocked now. I know. I know. It's it's it's, it's unfortunate, but uh, I, do, I do read the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> I do, too. Just, I, sh- I shouldn't say this, like, but I, I read it more now that it's in its digital form than uh, in its print form. Um, I, I, do, I do both. I mean, what I did uh, yesterday, I scanned the... The things I wanted to check, yep. uh, uh, see which of my reviews appeared this month, and then the issue, the I, the things like people in publishing, I tend to browse through in the, in the real issue. I still like to have the yes. physical issue, but in honesty, I look at the New York, I look at the our Locus bestseller list in the same way I look at the New York Times yeah, bestseller list to see if anybody I know is on it, to see if there's anybody I'm proud of. Um, we should mention that our my our friend Peter Straub hit number yes, seventeen on the New York Peter, Times yes. uh, bestseller list. Friend of the podcast, yes. Right, uh, so so it's that kind of thing I love to watch out for. And the other reason, um, not not necessarily with Locust, but with other bestseller lists, USA Today, which we report on and so forth, yeah. I find myself looking at bestseller lists less and less because occasionally I'll see something really, really nice like Engineering Infinity or Dark Matter, but usually I see things like, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, what, you know, well yeah, that's not a very yeah. We don't need to go there too much, but yeah, I know what you mean. Oh. Um, yes, yes, I think that's probably a fair comment. I mean, I should actually clarify as well. The, the reason that I think I st- I slowed down reading the printed issue of the magazine was for a long time, as you know, Gary. I actually proofread it. Mm-hmm. They would email me chunks of the magazine, and I would proofread them and send proofreading back, which was fine. But really ground out the desire to read the page after page of of the actual magazine itself and that's something that sort of I've rediscovered over time and which I'm very happy about and the digital edition has certainly helped a great deal so that's been good so yeah I, I, I had a small taste of that same experience when I'd I'd visit Oakland uh, you know to spend time with Charles and uh, mm. if I made a mistake and visited anywhere near deadline uh, I would be thinking I'm having my vacation in Oakland, and here's Charles handing me a sheaf of pages and say, "Here, do these." So I, that happens different times. Yes, <laughs> you know. I think he was. He was. He. In fact, I know this. I mean, I've, I had certainly at least one experience where he picked me up at the airport with a proof copy, like the printout of of the magazine, to thrust uh-huh. into my hands whilst we were sort of, you know. Uh, because I'd be impressed, and here it was, the latest issue. I was getting to see it early, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. you know. But we're having dinner, you know, lunch on, on the way or whatever, and he, he wasn't above sort of slipping a red pen into your hand while you were sitting there. I have to, the, 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 the most bizarre, we're telling Charles stories that mean something to only a few people possibly, <laughs> but the most bizarre example of that was I was out there, not quite a week, four or five times, yeah. and um, he had a five-volume series reprints from, I'm, I'm thinking it may have been Tartarus Press, some uh, small press had, had, had republished a five-volume series of, I think, uh, late 19th, early 20th century yeah. horror novels, which he wanted me to review while I was there. And I said, this is five volumes of, of 40, I don't know, 15 novels maybe. You want me to read this and review it while I'm here? And he said, yeah. Uh, 
And then we had this long discussion, and, and he finally said, well, you don't have to read them, which was an ongoing argument that I had with Charles when he wanted me to read historical things. They always say, you don't have to read them, just say something about them. And I spent, <laughs> a, I spent a day and a half plowing through these mostly not very interesting horror stories from 1912, yeah. and, uh, and, and enough to say something. I wrote a, a, a short review of them while I was there, and I thought, I am flying out here, and to escape this work and getting more work than I ever had if I'd not come at all. Absolutely. And, and making see, deeply the, the point there was, yeah, the point there was he was not about to mail these things to me and take a chance on my not returning them. <laughs> so I was like, sit, sit down to review before you leave. Yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Ah, well, well, before we sign off, I should say, what are you reading at the moment? Um, well, what I'm reading at the moment are 25, student master's theses oh, which i'm within four or five of, of of finishing yeah um but uh there there are some I'm, I'm looking at some interesting uh uh argentine and french fantasy things that are kind of in that tradition that we're talking about and yeah. I, I'm, I'm blanking on the novels of both of them yeah they yeah. both must have been sent to me by locus yeah, um, yeah. and then looking looking for the next big thing to look at yeah uh, so um i um what, what i generally do it only happens this time of the year Got my column in late, as you well know, mm. uh, knowing that I was going to have a couple of weeks when I wasn't going to be reading anything, and then uh, coming back and um, uh, you know, and, and 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 picking up what's next on my pile. What's actually next on my pile is a is a collection of Kit Reed stories called What Wolves Know, a PS book, which is probably going to be maybe too late to review by the time I finish it. But you know, when I'm swamped with papers, I look at at interesting short story yeah. collections that that make it possible to read something without extended concentration because your mind is turned to spaghetti by student papers. Yeah. Excellent. Yes, well, I find myself obviously reading old Diana Wynne-Jones novels, which probably I should not be reading because mm -hmm. I have too many other things to be reading. Uh, reading Embassy Town, which I'm just sort of really back into having started it, then let, being distracted from it. Mm -hmm. And a Isabel Carmody anthology, which came my oh. way the other day. Isabel's edited a, uh, an anthology here in Australia of retold fairy tales, of all things, yeah. and uh, opens with a compelling story Excellent. by Margot Lanigan. So. Now, that's the sort of thing is, uh, that, uh, that may change the way uh, we start reviewing things in Locus, because do you know if that's going to appear in the UK or the US at all? I don't think it is. Um, and yet it's, well, it's well, not irrelevant for us to look at that. I would actually argue strongly that, and I, th I think you would see my point, that books like it and others are directly relevant. I mean, uh, there are books like, say, Yellow Cake by Margot Lanigan, which you reviewed recently, which won't be out in the, the States till mid to late next year or something. Uh, then there are books which may never appear in the U.S., and I think we still have a great obligation to cover them. I think that, first of all, the ability to get a, get a hold of books is now so much greater that it's less of an issue. And I think that our readership expects it of us. I, I really do. Well, quite, I, quite rightly so. Uh, Charles used to argue that what we're trying to do in a magazine like this, and I'm sure that the same thing is uh, true of other venues like SF Signal or Strange Horizons and so yeah. forth, is that he did want to influence the field. He wanted, yeah. if there was a book, uh, if there or a writer who was not widely known in the States and uh, was important, uh, that we should 
bring that to the attention of people, and in some cases, even bring it to the attention possibly of publishers or, sure, sure. Uh, or American agents. Charles always argued, for example, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it was his pride that, that the American reputation of Greg Egan came about partly because of, of Locus's continually flogging him as a very important new writer. Yeah. Um, and I don't know whether that had any influence on publishing decisions or not, but Charles took pride in that because he thought sure. that if somebody is is of huge significance uh, like that, that we ought to be bringing attention to, to, to them. In the case of Australian writers, I know yeah. that uh, Locus paid a lot of attention to uh, Terry Dowling at a time when uh, not a lot of people in the States were paying no. attention. Yeah, it's true. So, yes, I think the re, you know, sort of re, reading widely and not being overly concerned about the publication details is probably a, an important thing for us to do. I think so. So we will... Which is a way of saying, can I see that book? <laughs> I'm trying to get an electronic copy of it, actually. Um, oh. And, and they, they, they resolutely sent me a very handsome copy of the hardcover, of the hard copy. And I'm very mm -hmm. grateful, but I'm still trying to get an electronic copy because <laughs> I could get it out to people much more readily. You know, uh, I mean, this is something we'll discuss maybe another time on, on the podcast. There's a couple of things on my mind to chat with you know, about. And one of them is just this whole accessibility issue and reading and reviewing and all this kind of thing. And I think at some point we will. But when, yeah. when, I don't know, because the podcast tears ahead. I mean, a, a happy note perhaps to end on is that I have no idea about the reliability of podcast statistics, but apparently we had twice the number of, in fact, more than twice, far more than twice the number of downloads in the merry month of March than we did in February or January or any other month. Well, that's, that's very, that's very nice to hear. Yes. Um, our, our numbers have swelled to something approaching a regular uh, audience of more than 500. So, hello, all of you. Hello, all of you. Please correct everything we said that was incorrect on this podcast. Because <laughs> we'll we'll as, put as, things as back people, the way they're supposed to next week. Well, yeah, as, 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 as Jeff Ford and, um, and, and, and Karen and, and Liza discovered on that joint podcast, we don't know what we're doing. We, we, we don't have notes. We haven't done our research. We haven't prepared anything. And so we're going to make statements that are completely ad hoc. And Absolutely. some of them are going to be wrong. And we depend on our friends to, uh, to, to let us know that. Yes. The one thing that we, we, we should set as a goal, though, and we haven't actually formally set, set it as a goal, but I think we, we should, is that we'll record at least one podcast a year in the same room. That's a good goal, uh, Although this year may be difficult. Uh, well, I'm going to try to get to World Fan work on. Uh, that would be great. I would love to get to World Fantasy, because, but I can't. Uh, yeah. it's, it's becoming more and more. But yeah, I think we should definitely do that. And, uh, and, and next year, invite me to SwanCon. You should come. You would, you'd have some kind of fun. I mean, each one's different, you know, frankly. They're not, a, not the kind of convention that is a set tone every year. And, of course, the, 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 in fact, the thing with SwanCon is this year's the NatCon. Maybe you'd be better served going to a NatCon next year, we have to say. But we can discuss it. I mean, we can I think you would have enjoyed it. this year's one. I think uh, Elisa and her team are sure to do a wonderful job, and the convention will be terrific. And, yeah, you would have had a ball, but... Maybe we'll just fire up Skype and do a podcast and see if we can get a little bit of the feel of the whole thing going. That would be great. That would be wonderful. Okay. I'd love to. On that, that cheery note, I will talk to you next week. Next week, it'll be probably back to our usual time schedule, but... Oh, please, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if, you, if you prefer, we can do it this way. No, it's 
very odd. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm out. I'm out of coffee, so I'm going to stop talking okay. spontaneously at any moment. Anyway. Okay. Good night, Gary. Good night. Okay. Good morning.